So today and Wednesday, we're thinking about divorce and remarriage. Um, this is um, a topic I've done some um, research and writing on in the past over the years, um, particularly over the Greek thing of oikonomia. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you were with those debates as they were going on in the Synod. So some of you were actually quite young in 2014 when... Um, so 2014, 2015, there were synods on the family. Um, and even though these synods themselves weren't primarily about divorce and remarriage, in the media and in certain church circles, that became the focus of what was going on, what was being debated. So one of the lecturers I knew in my last seminary, um, she was actually one of the preti at that synod. And she was saying the experience of being at the synod was utterly different, supposedly not that different to Vatican II. The experience of being there was very different from the experience of how it was reported in the media. So the media, all they cared about, or in certain media circles, was this divorce and remarriage question. Whereas actually the synods themselves were much broader looking at family, looking at pastoral engagement of the family, looking at new evangelization in the family. So there have been, in certain Catholic circles, all kinds of questions raised about divorce and remarriage. Can we remarry people who had a Catholic wedding, their spouse dies, rather their spouse doesn't die, so they have a Catholic wedding, they separate and get a civil divorce, then they find some other partner, either live with them or get a civil non-church wedding with that second person. Can that somehow be regularized, even though their Catholic spouse is still alive? So basically what I'm going to be arguing and articulating is no, um, and that this is needing to be faithful to what our Lord says in the Gospel. If it's what our Lord says in the Gospel, if with that it's rooted in natural law and our nature, then it's actually what's good for us. That the call to conversion is always a call to a more authentic way of living, even when it's not an easy way living. Um, so what do I want to do with you today and in the next lecture on Wednesday? Today I basically want to give you a summary of what would, what is, was the church's position in terms of the stand, standing of someone who is divorced and remarried with their original spouse still alive. What's their status in the church and the particular focus of that therefore becomes may they receive Holy Communion, may they go to confession. That's what I want to kind of look at today. Then on Wednesday, if we have time, we'll look at the Greek economia practice. So the reading material I gave you for today very briefly summarised that debate. If you want, I've to look online as I've listed on the bibliography, um, I've written some articles on that, um, but I'm going to hold that for Wednesday. Um, so today, basically just looking to look at the basis for the traditional position and what that means in practical application. So let's look to the lecture notes starting on the first page there. So, you know, just starting ourselves scripturally, um, that remarriage is forbidden by Christ. So, you know, we touched on this when we looked at what scripture says about marriage, but just in this particular focus, what does the Lord say as recorded in Mark? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Then in the footnote, I quote St. Paul, 
in his letters to the Corinthians. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Sorry, that was Luke. St. Paul, to the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not divorce his wife. So St. Paul's articulating there um, a different phraseology, a different expression, but the same position. Um, then at the top of the page back again, quoting from Matthew. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now you'd have read in the reading for today, the, a brief at least analysis of the pornea clause. So the word I've put there in the RSV translation says unchastity. The Greek is pornea. Now, literally, if it was adultery, as some of the tradition has translated that, um, that would actually be moikia, which is a different Greek word. So in the Greek, what's being referred to isn't adultery, even though some translations have made the unchastity adultery. It uses this word pornea. And as the reading you had, summarized and as I've summarized here um, the Greek word there is variously translated and variously interpreted so if we look at the patristic texts although the application is consistent what they argue is going on in the text they disagree and so there are two standard but differing Catholic interpretations of the text the first I say that the pornea clause refers to certain incestuous Gentile unions that, Jew, that the Jews considered unchaste. Such unions were therefore never real marriages. One was obliged to leave them. And one, one would therefore be free to marry someone else. The second translation is that what the Lord is saying there is an exception referring to a ground for separation but not a ground for remarriage. And in the West, that was kind of the predominant interpretation of the text. Um, but I think modern scripture scholarship would usually side with the first as making more sense of the Greek. Now, before we move on, just logically speaking, do those two tra interpretations, translations, do they make sense to you? Do you understand what's being articulated there? So the, in the first interpretation, translation, what you have is a union that the Gentiles think is a marriage, but that the Jews say isn't. Um, and there are a number of different reasons that could be the case. It could be a polygamous union or incestuous in some form, depending on the degree of relationship. So you shouldn't actually be with that person. You should leave that person, and if you do, therefore you haven't ever been really married, so you are therefore free to marry. Whereas the other would be saying, if your spouse commits adultery, that's a ground to leave them, but that doesn't mean you're free to marry somebody else. So that in the church's pastoral practice, we know there are all kinds of reasons where separation is permitted, requires, practically necessary, but you are still married to your spouse, even if for some reason you can't be together. And because you are still married, you're not free to marry somebody else.
So I've said there, spelling out the separation question. So separation. A Catholic couple may separate and may even legally divorce in civil law, the law of the land, though in the eyes of God and his church, they remain married. So note, in the case, except in the case of adultery, any separation is temporary in the sense that it may only be morally maintained as long as the grounds for the separation remain. Now that might seem like a technical point, but it is, I think, articulating theologically what is going on there with the marriage. You remain married, and you may separate if there are grounds to be separate, but if those grounds stop, well then you should go back to your spouse. Uh, Daniel, would you mind, so I've then listed from the canons the grounds for separation. Would you mind reading those for us? Sure. Spouses have the obligation and the right to maintain their common conjugal life unless a lawful reason excuses them. It is earnestly recommended that a spouse, motivated by Christian charity and solicitous for the good of the family, should not refuse to pardon an adulterous partner and should not sunder the conjugal life. Nevertheless, if that spouse has not either expressly or tacitly condoned the other's fault, he or she has the right to sever the common conjugal life, provided he or she has not consented to the adultery, nor been the cause of it, nor also committed adultery. Tacit condemnation occurs if the innocent spouse, after becoming aware of the adultery, has willingly engaged in a marital relationship with the other spouse. It is presumed, however, if the innocent spouse has maintained the common conjugal life for six months and has not had recourse to ecclesiastical or to civil authority. Within six months of having spontaneously terminated the common conjugal life, the innocent spouse is to bring a case for separation to the competent ecclesiastical authority. Having, exa having examined all the circumstances, this authority is to consider whether the innocent spouse can be brought to condone the fault and not prolong the separation permanently. A spouse who occasions grave danger of soul or body to the other or to the children, or otherwise makes the common life unduly difficult, provides the other spouse with a reason to leave, either by a decree of the local ordinary, or if there is danger and delay, even on his or her own authority. In all cases, when the reason for separation ceases, the common conjugal life is to be restored unless provided by ecclesiastical authority. Okay, so before we turn the page, let's just pause a moment and be sure we all have kind of understood the vision laid out there by the church. So the first section there is all about adultery, which obviously taps into the translation interpretation of the Matthew text being adultery. Um, so on one level, this indicates to us that the church thinks adultery is a, a serious thing. What was the first grounds for you to leave your spouse if they've committed adultery? It's, it's a big deal. You are encouraged to forgive, encouraged to seek reconciliation, but that adultery can so damage the common life that it's the first grounds for, for separating. Now the second canon there, um, that I put in slightly larger print, actually is quite long in terms of the range of different possibilities for separating common life. So danger of soul or body um, to yourself or to the children. Well, to take one example, your spouse is an alcoholic or becomes an alcoholic. You might still love them, but just realize you cannot, for the safety of your children, remain living together. So you separate. And that cause for separation may, well, indefinite, possibly forever, um, but there is a, a reason for the separation. Um, but it even lists their unduly difficult. Now that is fairly broad in terms of what that can mean. Um, 
so where is the church is kind of starting with saying you should be together you are married you have a right an obligation to be together actually being unduly difficult covers quite a lot and the church doesn't really I think consciously decides not to specify what that means in practice now in England and America it, so it refers there to appealing to an ecclesiastical court so who would give the grounds for a separation well in America you would is separation is a legal process here like divorce would be a legal process typically typically no it isn't okay. because in terms of like dividing your assets or determining custody of the children that typically wouldn't be decided at least not definitively decided unless there's an actual divorce okay well by point of comparison in UK law a couple can legally separate in which issues like custody of children, property and so forth, can be established by a civil court, even though they remain legally married, um, and may or may not proceed to a, a divorce later, probably in practice would. Um, the vision there is that there's an ecclesiastical court doing that navigating. Um, I don't know if your experience do you know, would you have ecclesiastical courts doing separations back home? Or do you not know? And you just don't know. Okay. Um, but, so I suppose... In this context, although it exists in church law and practice, that doesn't happen. Um, but the basic point, being separated doesn't mean you're divorced. Being separated and divorced in civil law doesn't mean, in the eyes of God and his church, that you're free to marry somebody else. That you remain sacramentally, or even at the natural bond level, married to your spouse okay so what does that mean if somebody does separate divorce civilly and then live with somebody else get a civil marriage with somebody else where does that leave them with the church well let's turn over the page page two So titled this page, Living as Divorced and Remarried Catholics. Remarried in the sense of civilly remarried, not remarried in church. Um, so I started by saying marriage is a public and not a private reality. It affects the community. That's why a marriage is declared publicly. That's why it's a legal process, not just a private thing, it affects others. That means also divorce affects others and remarriage affects others. So divorce and remarriage thus affects the remarried in their relationship with the community of the church and the sacraments of the church. So does it just say, well, you know, this is just us, why does the church have to get involved? Well, actually, just us does affect others. So what is the status of somebody divorced and remarried? Actually, so just clarify your notes there. Divorced and remarried. So the Catechism says, objectively, they contravene God's law. And they do so in an ongoing status. So all kinds of, you know, we in our sin, we continually contravene God's law. 
But if you're doing it in an ongoing status, such that your state of life contradicts God's law, that's a different thing. So the church says that such a person cannot receive Holy Communion. Jacob, would you mind reading the next? So this is from John Paul II in his Dogma Familiaris Consortio. Their state and condition of life objectively contradict that union of love between Christ and the Church, which is signified and affected by the Eucharist. If these people were admitted to the Eucharist, the faithful would be led into error and confusion regarding the Church's teaching about the indissolubility of marriage. So the Catechism goes on to say that people in this state cannot exercise certain ecclesiastical responsibilities. Now that isn't actually specified in the Catechism, and I'm guessing that's a conscious decision by the law of the Church not to specify, but I flag up some examples. Being a choir master, or an organist, or a chairperson of the parish pastoral council. You know, there are lots of roles in the parish community that are very public, and so the state of life of someone in that role serves as an example to the rest of the community. Now, ultimately, it's going to be down, therefore, to the pastor to decide how that affects the rest of the community. And you could imagine one parish, somehow, that causing scandal, whereas in another parish, it might not. Like, the status of an organist in one community can sometimes be a very big thing, and in another community, the organist is kind of a, not quite a nothing thing, but... So there isn't a list given by the church, these roles are excluded. But it does not just affect you in receiving communion. It does affect you as a role model to others. And so I've had friends as pastors who have asked people to step down from certain positions. Not just because they were divorced and remarried and in a public role, but kind of their vocal public statement about it and staying in a public official role in the parish was creating a contradiction there. And you have the difficulty pastorally, if you don't say something, then that example gets embedded in normalcy in parish life for you to, or your successor, to raise it 10 years down the line, then becomes difficult. Okay, the last of those bullet points on their status, they cannot receive absolution in the sacrament of penance and confession. And why not? Because they've not repented of their sin against marriage. Unless, and we'll come on to what this means on the next page, unless he or she is committed to living in complete continence. So if you go and commit yourself to live as if you weren't married, then you can, in confession, say, I'm sorry that I went through that remarriage ceremony. I repent of it, and you can therefore be absolved. But unless you're able to make that statement, it would be meaningless to seek absolution, because you can't be absolved for one sin, but not another. You've got to bring all your sins to the So what then is the church's role towards them? Well, I said the call to repentance. This is you know, a tough thing to say, but a call to repentance. I, we cannot view their situation as acceptably permanent. Thus their bar from Holy Communion is referred to in the Catechism as as long as this situation persists, rather than referring to it as being permanent. We're wanting the situation to stop. We're calling on them to stop the situation. It's not just permanent. It's as long as the situation persists. But then with that, manifesting an attentive solicitude so that they do not consider themselves separated from the church in whose life they can and must participate as baptized persons. 
So the flip side of being concerned about their public example as choir master is you do nonetheless want them in as much as they are still Catholic, you want them to be part of the parish. And that's a hard thing to somehow hold those two things together. But that is our role, to call them to change, and sometimes a long, slow call, but that is our call to them. But with that, to try and keep them in, not just drive them out so that they go to the Episcopal Church down the road, um, which, you know, all too frequently is what happens. Do you all understand the articulation of where we are so far with this? I just want to point out a connection that was in the reading material that was articulated by John Paul II. He's making the connection, why a link between marriage and Holy Communion? What's the connection there? So marriage, that's a useless pen, isn't it? Marriage is a bride and groom Christ and his church are a bride and groom and so that marriage signifies this relationship it's a sacrament of it yeah but that that is realized in the Holy Eucharist. So that of all the activities the church does, Holy Communion, participating in the Mass, realizes this connection beyond anything else that the church does. And that's why receiving Communion isn't just a random penalty as a random punishment for someone divorced and remarried is actually inherent in the whole connection of what's going on here. So that was in Dolaro's commentary, but only briefly. Okay, page three. Now this thing, living as brother and sister. So, you have a couple that are in a non-church union. Either they are just living together and not in any civil marriage, or they've had a civil marriage. But they're living together and they decide they want to put things right with God and his church. They reach that stage. Yes, they had some messy background of divorce, all kinds of things messy in their background. They've now reached the stage in their life they realize where they are now isn't right and they want to put it right. But they've got some reason why they can't just walk away from uh, and probably the most common reason for that is they have new children together from their union. So if they separate, that leaves their children of that new union without their parents, which is therefore an injustice to the children. Another reason as a pastor I've come across many times is this gets flagged up late in life. Um, so you have a man and a woman living together, um, and one of them realizes they're dying, and they want to put themselves right with God. Now to tell them, well, you need to move house, you need to separate um, when you've got a year to live, and you're frail in body, you, that's just not coherent to think that is the expectation um, of the call. But they can 
no longer live as if they were husband and wife. So the phrase, therefore, is to live as brother and sister. So we can either envisage that with a relatively young couple, where if it wasn't for these questions, they would be engaging in the marital act on a regular basis. Um, they do have young children in the household, but they have to stay together for the sake of some other reason, like their new children. Or we envisage it, say, late in life, um, where the marital act, you know, sometimes that become, remains a regular thing very late in life, but often it's not. Um, well, what's that look like in practice? Well, that's what this page is looking at. And before, in a sense, we look at that, just to make the point, you know, I as a pastor, this is an awkward set of conversations I've had, but that I've had many times as a pastor, and it's our duty to do that slowly, patiently, um, aware of how painful it is for them. Um, but sadly, you know, a fair few priests do just try and wash their hands of this, um, and it is our duty. So when Pope Francis is talking about accompaniment, um, it's difficult to accompany people through this, but it is our role. So we can either avoid accompanying by just shouting from a distance and telling them to go away, or we can avoid it by just refusing to talk about it, refusing to help them put this right with God. Well, the path of accompaniment is neither of those. It's, it's taking the time, the effort, to, to meet with them, talk through this with them, and sometimes talking through it in the sense of helping them make mentally, spiritually the journey involved in changing their mindset. Okay, page three. So, living as brother and sister. As indicated above, someone divorced and remarried may be admitted to sacramental absolution and thus to Holy Communion if he or she is committed to living in complete continence i.e. the couple resolved to live as brother and sister. Now, what does that mean? Well, I spell out here a few points. A couple needs to somehow be able to do this without causing public scandal to others, especially other Catholic parishioners, who might be led to think that remarriage is all right, because this respected couple... Um, are remarried Catholics and thus looks, they look like they're living as husband and wife, so it must be okay to do that. Because most of this conversation is going to happen privately, right? But they're going to communion, it's going to be a public thing. So that somehow has to be worked out as a pastoral context. Often it'll be straightforward because in the parish they're in, nobody knows about the fact that 30 years ago they divorced somebody else. Um, so often it's not a factor that way. But I can think of at least one parish I've been in where actually the original divorce was a very public thing and almost split the whole parish community. Those two people both remained in the parish, then remarried, and so the remarriage was a, is a big public thing. So you couldn't just say, well, in private, in confession we've sorted this. Um, you've got to figure out how that's going to look publicly. So say after such absolution, they might receive Holy Communion. They'd need to do so in such a way that it didn't cause scandal. For example, and this is one of the examples, to do so in a parish where they're not well known. So you could have a couple that maybe continue their regular parish, but once a month go to another parish and receive communion there, where they don't cause public confusion. There are a number of ways you can work this out, but it's, it's an irregular situation. It's, it's going to be something not normal about it. 
Okay, quoting church documents. So I first quote the CDF in 1994, had a letter to bishops about this. Um, I then quote an article by canon lawyer John Boyle um, on the application of it. And then I quote the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Texts on the same thing. So this means in practice that when for serious reasons, for example, for the children's upbringing, a man and woman cannot satisfy the obligation to separate, they take on themselves the duty to live in complete continence. That is, by abstinence from the acts proper to married couples. In such a case, they may receive Holy Communion as long as they respect the obligation to avoid giving scandal. Then, quoting the canon lawyer, John Boyle, the manner of avoiding scandal is that, living as brother and sister, they receive Holy Communion in a place where the fact of their divorce and civil remarriage is not commonly known. And lastly, quoting the Pontifical Council, given that, the, given that the fact that these faithful are not living more uxore, the fact they're not um, engaging in the marital act is in itself secret, occult. Nobody knows that. They just publicly see a married couple. While their conditions as divorced and remarried is per se manifest, they are able to receive Holy Communion only remote scandal, avoiding scandal. So it's obvious to see how that's complicated, obvious to see how that's difficult to apply. I would make the point to you it can be applied, and I as a pastor have helped couples figure that out many times. If it becomes publicly known. Yeah. Yes. Um, the scandal would be due to the confusion, so that they're living as brother and sister, but nobody else knows that. So it's because nobody else knows that there's scandal. Um, and that's why those various church documents are saying this is the thing that you've got to figure out how to avoid. So if they weren't living in the same house, all of this wouldn't, in a sense, be an issue. That would solve it in itself. Um, so we're presuming a scenario where there's some reason they need to still live together. So one of them is in old age, so physically dependent on the other, that it just wouldn't be right to abandon them to their physical frailty. Or in their second union, they've got a child together or multiple children together, and if they separated, well, the children actually have a right to be with their parents. So you then have two conflicting obligations. So how do you marry that? By living as brother and sister. So the church documents say you have a duty to not do it, causing scandal. Don't specify the question you're raising. So I know couples who that is exactly how they do it. Okay. I can picture one couple in the parish where it was kind of embarrassing just how 
rapidly, they would say to spontaneous new strangers, um, but we live as brother and sister. Um, sure, maybe not the first thing you wanted to know about. Um, <laughs> I suppose it would depend on the couple and their willingness to share that too. Thinking of that couple and others I know, they reached a stage where actually they were really convinced about what the church believed and really convinced they wanted to do it right and didn't want to confuse others. Um, sort of evangelical witness to that also. Right, actually a very powerful witness, yeah. But I definitely don't think that is expected in this sure. as normative. So the normative thing being referred to is somehow doing this secretly somewhere else, receiving communion. It is strange, but it's a strange situation because you're trying to marry, not avoid the word marry, up, put, put together what, what are confi conflicting priorities. And they can be put together, but not in a normal way because it isn't normal. And you don't need to think long to, to think about why a priest should just walk away from this. You know, you're a busy man as a priest, and this takes time. So this living as a brother and sister solution is an internal forum solution. Has there been an external forum solution proposed other than the annulment or, s or separation process? Because I've, like, right. they haven't chosen that, and it's not feasible for other reasons. So, yes. So I've not mentioned annulment. Um, we're kind of presuming at this stage a declaration of nullity isn't possible. So, um, sorry, where were you going with that? So like this living as brother and oh, sister. Oh yes, internal forum solution. Yeah, there's an internal forum solution. Okay, so the article there by the canon lawyer, which you actually is on the properly um, reading materials available to download if you want. Very clear, very well written. Um, he was the canon lawyer teaching in the last seminary I was at. Um, basically, he is taking issue with what was suggested as an internal forum solution, whereby any remarried couple would just privately go to a priest in confession, and the priest would say, that's okay, you can now continue together for whatever incoherent reasons, but all done privately. Right. And so various church statements have rejected the internal forum solution. In another manner, though, this is an internal forum solution. It's just with fairly precise criteria. So it's not enough to just be unhappy about the fact that your divorce was a mess, to be unhappy about the fact that your divorce was your fault, and you see that now. Um, that doesn't mean you're free to live with somebody else and have the priest in private just wave his hand over you and make it okay. <laughs> then the situation that can be really difficult for you as pastors is when you inherit a situation where some other priest has done just that. Some other priest has said, um, no, it's okay for you to, to live together for whatever reason. Um, I had one case like that in a previous parish, and they'd even managed to somehow get a letter from a vicar general. No, they didn't have a letter, but they somehow had a conversation that gave the appearance, um, which was an injustice to them, because they thought they'd followed some kind of due process. Um, but there was no grounds. Um, and I tried to follow up, was there some bit of the process here I'd missed? Um, okay, bottom of that page, that little section, just I specify brother and sister. I say they don't share a bed together. You know, a brother and sister don't share a bed together. Um, there'd have to be some reason 
some grounds for them to continue living with this other person. Otherwise, the obligation to separate remains. Um, such grounds would frequently be mutual support for the children's upbringing. I'd say don't share a bed together. I can envisage at the age of 85 when actually that might not be an issue. Um, in my experience, if you can talk to a couple and they buy the logic, they understand the connections that need to be made here and understand that sharing a bed together makes it difficult to live as brother and sister. Okay, over the page. So, it will happen to you that you have, you will have a couple in your parish who will say, I don't care what the church teaches, I'm having communion anyway. And they march up. So what do you do? So this page is called Denying Communion to Those Who Refuse to Refrain from It. So you've explained to them you should refrain. So what should you do? Or you move into a new parish and you're told they're divorced and remarried and they're going to communion every week and it's terrible. Um, well, so what do I say here? I say first, a priest should seek to check the facts of the situation. You know, time and again, people will tell you things that are just not right, not true. They think they're true, but they're not. So seek as much as you can, even before you talk to the couple, if something's, try and get the facts progressively. He should seek to talk to the person or couple concerned. So it might only be an individual. So maybe the other second spouse isn't in the church, that they're not even a Catholic of any form. So you might only have one part of the remarriage before you, but try to talk to them. What you should, what should you, you, you should seek to explain why they may not receive Holy Communion at present, as I said, hopefully this is a transitional state. Explain what repentance in their situation involves, what living incontinence would mean for them as brother or sister or separated. The possibility of remaining continent while applying for and awaiting a request for a decree of nullity for the previous marriage. And the need to accept the possibility of not being granted a decree of nullity and annulment. And recognizing that there's this phrase, I'm guessing you either have or will do it in the canon law of marriage. Got a course on the canon law of marriage? So there's this phrase, marriage enjoys the favor of the law. If you've been through the ceremony, you need to prove the reverse rather than just claim the reverse. Explain to the couple that marriage is a public, not a private reality, and thus the public determination by the authority of the church of the validity, invalidity of their first marriage is something that pertains to the very nature of marriage as a public reality. Now before moving on to the next bullet point, just to make sure we're all clear here, declaration of nullity. So we have this phrase, an annulment. An annulment is not the language of the church. The language of the church is a declaration of nullity. The word annulment risks sounding as if the church changes it and makes it Whereas actually what the church is declaring is that it is null and always was null. That there was something in the marriage that from the very beginning was always defective, not true. Therefore it isn't a marriage, despite some bit of the external ceremony all being in place. Um, so a couple can be remarried, living together, decide they want to put things right with the church, one of the ways to seek to do that would be to say, okay, we think that my previous union actually, I think it was not right to begin with. I apply for a declaration of nullity. Well, while you're waiting, marriage enjoys the favor of the law and you should be behaving as if you are married to your original spouse. And be ready for the fact that that declaration may not go as you want it to go. 
And conversely, we as pastors also have a duty to help them in every legal process possible, uh, to not make it awkward for them to have a judgment. If, if the legal process would be in their favor, we have a duty to help make that possible. I've certainly had a number of cases where the parish thought it was a valid marriage, even a happy marriage, but actually I knew stuff that even at the engagement stage, um, there is a, an element of fear, coercion. What sounded like real grounds for thinking it was not null, a null union even from the beginning, even though there's a happy public ceremony in the church. And they had 27 children, and everybody thought this is the best Catholic family ever. Um, okay, so I've said that what you as the pastor should seek to explain. I say, but if they insist on presenting themselves for communion anyway, even though you've said this, you should then refuse them. You have a duty to refuse them. And I say, given that people will sometimes deliberately make it difficult for you to talk to them about awkward things, a priest might have to refuse without being able to speak to them privately. And I have had that situation over the years, not frequently, but I sense something isn't right and I'm looking to have a word, even to say, can we arrange to meet? And they always slip by. And I realize at a certain stage that isn't an accident. They don't want to have an awkward conversation. And therefore, they've denied me the capacity to have a conversation with them. Um, naturally, pastoral prudence would strongly suggest the avoidance of instances of public denial of Holy Communion. Pastors must strive to explain to the concerned faithful the true ecclesial sense of the norm in such a way that they would be able to understand it or at least respect it. In those situations, however, in which these precautionary measures have not had their effect or in which they were not possible, the minister of communion must refuse to distribute it to those who are publicly unworthy. They are to do this with extreme charity. They are to look for the opportune moment to explain the reasons that require the refusal. They must, however, do this with firmness, conscience of the value that such signs of strength, the value that such signs of strength have for the good of church and of souls. Um, and again, that's the Pontifical Council for the Interpretation of Legislative Text. That's not just a random canon lawyer. So sometimes a public denial is what triggers the call to conversion. And that's awkward for you as the priest, it's awkward for them, but often awkward things are what forces somebody to rethink their situation. I note that the responsibility lies with the priest and may not be dispensed by a bishop. And here I'm quoting a canon lawyer, but the dispense the discernment of cases in which the faithful who find themselves in the described condition are to be excluded from Eucharistic communion is the responsibility of the priest who is responsible for the community. They are to give precise instructions to the deacon or to any extraordinary minister regarding the mode of acting in concrete situations. Now, when you're an assistant pastor, you may well find yourself in all kinds of awkward situations in this regard. I think it is the duty of the pastor, not of the assistant priest. Um, but even that um, is going to vary in different situations. So you might be an assistant priest and you're with a group on pilgrimage. And then actually, I don't think you can pass the buck. You are, in effect, pastor to that community. Okay, page five. This is the last page I want to cover today. Um, now, have you all done the canon law of marriage? 
but you will do it. Yeah. Um, so this page is basically summarizing the canon law of marriage. This page is basically trying to explain the difference between a natural union and a sacramental union. So a sacramental union can never be dissolved. A natural union is a real union. It has an inherent permanence, but it is capable of being dissolved. And that's a significant distinction. Okay, so title of this page, Some Valid Marriages Are Nonetheless Capable of Being Dissolved. So I say, marriage is made by the properly expressed exchange of consent. A marriage attempted contrary to the law of the church is not properly expressed and is thus not a real marriage. For example, a baptized Catholic marrying in a registry office. So I should have translated that into American um, <laughs> What would be the justice of the peace? Courthouse. Courthouse. Um, so two Catholics would be completely free to marry in a Catholic church, but they don't go to the Catholic church. They go to the courthouse for whatever reason. Um, okay, the zoo, right. Yeah. Um, they, um, it's not a marriage. It's not properly expressed consent. It's a public thing, not just with the state, but with the church. So it's therefore not actually a marriage. Now, moving on. A sacramental marriage is one between two baptized persons and is therefore indissoluble. In contrast, a non-sacramental marriage is a real natural bond, but lacks the sacramental character. This real natural bond is permanent and what's called intrinsically indissoluble, though dissoluble extrinsically by divine power and exercised, exercised vicariously by the vicar of Christ. And in this limited sense, it's called dissoluble. Um, that's the traditional canon law terminology, intrinsic and extrinsic dissolubility. Germaine Griset, he proposes a different terminology that sounds to me to make more sense, but it isn't actually the traditional terminology. So I've used the traditional terminology there. Okay, I then flag up in the chart there different categories. Two non-baptized people who have exchanged consent so valid marriage. Neither were baptized. They went to the, the courthouse. It's a valid marriage. It's non-sacramental, but it is dissoluble. So it falls apart, and then one of them later becomes a Catholic. Actually, there is a route for that to be dissolved. Next category, a baptized and non-baptized person who have exchanged consent. This is also valid, non-sacramental, dissoluble. Two baptized persons who have exchanged consent but not consummated the marriage in the marital act. At that transitional stage, before the wedding night, but after the ceremony, it's valid, it's sacramental, but at that stage it's dissoluble. Whereas two baptized persons who have exchanged consent in proper form and consummated the marriage, it's valid, it's sacramental, it's indissoluble. I note a couple who are impotent and unable to consummate the marriage have therefore what would be called a real valid marriage, but one that can be dissolved. So you will get this occasionally a couple will come to you and they'll say, look, there's these physical things. We're never going to be able to consummate the marriage, but we love each other and we want to be together. That can be a valid marriage in church. Um, and from my limited experience, sometimes the couple find things working that they didn't expect to work. Um, but... If it's never consummated, it has the capacity to be dissolved at a later stage. And I heard one canon lawyer say to me, in his experience, actually those unions often didn't last because 
one of the couple, despite what they initially thought, it, it meant a, having sex means something and it didn't last without that. Then note a little aside here. The marriage of the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. Joseph. Well, this was valid, but capable of being dissolved. Now, I've read long commentaries by Jewish legal marriage commentators. Uh, I say, note, neither were baptized, so it wasn't going to be a baptized union. Um, it was a marriage as determined under Jewish law rather than under church law. So was it a real marriage? If someone asks you that question, the basic answer is it was a marriage under Jewish law, not under Christian law, because there was no baptism yet. Um, so we shouldn't try to retroactively map onto it something that only applies after the sacramental economy is instituted. Okay, annulment. What is an annulment? As I've said, technically it's a declaration of nullity it declares that there was never a valid marriage, valid marriage in the first place, despite some appearances of such. I, it doesn't dissolve the marriage, it just declares there never was a true marriage. Pauline and Petrine privilege. Um, this is where you do need a canon lawyer. Um, <laughs> so under these two privileges, which are rooted in the scriptures, that's why they're called Pauline and Petrine, you can dissolve a valid non-sacramental marriage. As I note, a valid consummated sacramental marriage is incapable of being dissolved. So the Pauline privilege. If the marriage was between two non-Christians, then it's not a sacramental marriage and does not have an indissoluble bond. If one of the two later receives baptism and the unbaptized spouse refuses either to physically cohabit or peacefully cohabit with the baptized spouse, then if the baptized person then seeks a new marriage with someone else, then the previous marriage is dissolved when the baptized person contracts a new marriage. Um, it's dissolved, the phrase is, in favour of the faith of that person. And then I quote St. Paul, To the marriage I give charge, not I but the Lord, that if the wife, that the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife, to the rest I say, not the Lord, so this is the Pauline privilege, not the Lord, if the unbelieving partner desires to separate, let it be so. In such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. For God has called us to peace. Um, so this is rooted in Paul. The Petrine privilege, or de a decree more generally in favour of the faith, this extends the logic of the Pauline privilege to cover the union between a baptised and unbaptised person. So baptised and non-baptised. Therefore it's not sacramental. It has within it the capacity to be dissolved. If the marriage was between a baptized and a non-baptized person, and if the non-baptized person never becomes baptized, then it's not a sacramental marriage and does not have an indissoluble bond. Thus the marriage bond can be dissolved in favor of the faith on case-specific grounds determined by the authority of the Supreme Pontiff, thus Petra. For example, a baptized party is seeking to marry someone else who's baptized. So that's a very brief one-page summary, grounds for annulment, um, Pauline Petran privilege. I'm not a canon lawyer, but any questions, comments on that? You will pretty much all, as pastors, have the job of receiving repeated couples seeking an annulment. Um, I always say I'm not a canon lawyer. I always explain to them why this is a church process. And I say just as any marriage is a 
legal public reality. The aspect of that in the church context is this goes to a church court. Um, and I always explain to them the reality that actually I, because I'm not a lawyer, don't know how this works. I will assist you as much as I can. And I will explain to them, sometimes details you think are important aren't legally important. And sometimes details you think aren't important are in your favor. So it is, it's to your benefit to, to go through this. And in that sense, it is internal forum, to use that word again. Um, there's no public record of that. There's no public declaration. Um, in a sense, it's their behavior that is putting that right. Their absolution has to be with a priest. Confession, to be confession, you've got to say what you've done wrong. You've got to say, to some extent, how you're resolved not to do it again, which is how we're resolved to be as brother and sister. Um, but that's all private. Um, so yeah, there's, there, you definitely don't take that to the bishop. We've covered quite a lot today. Uh, in terms of pastorally describing this. This isn't simple. It is complicated. It is hard work. It is one of those things as a priest. Uh, it's about our faithfulness to the Lord. It's also about our faithfulness to the truth. And that we've got to be convinced that the truth does set free, even when the truth isn't easy. Okay, so next on Wednesday, um, there will be, if you look at the number of pages here, there aren't as many pages for us to rush through. I want us to have a bit more capacity to discuss. Um, it is very important for you before our lecture on Wednesday to have read those texts from Amoris Laetitiae. So there's this allegation that somehow Pope Francis snuck in a footnote footnote 351 that utterly reversed and revolutionized um, what had been the, the practice for the last 2,000 years. Um, I am among those arguing it does not make sense to think if he wanted to do something that radical that he snuck it in in a footnote. A footnote that when he was asked at a later news conference he said, I don't even know what footnote you're talking about. Um, but the bishops in different countries have argued very dramatically about this. Um, so we'll have a chance to discuss that on Wednesday. All right, thank you all. Um,